and sometimes snakes. Oh, this this just keeps getting better. (laughs) Yeah, this sounds like my worst nightmare. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to People, Parasites, and Plagues, a podcast aimed at delivering information about the fascinating pathogens among us from the scientists who study them. I am Kim Klonowski. And I am David Peterson, your host for today's episode. Many of the great examples of research we have explored on this podcast take place solely at the lab bench. Today's guest does her fair share of bench work, but also a significant amount of field work tracing the factors that contribute to disease transmission to humans from zoonotic hosts via insect vectors. Our guest today is Dr. Nicole Gottenier, professor in the Department of Pathology at UGA and a member of the CEID, the Center for the Ecology of Infectious Diseases. Dr. Gottenier has worked on a tremendous variety of research projects, from parasitic vectors in Panama to outbreaks of the most deadly viruses such as Ebola. Nicole Welcome to the podcast. Thanks. So, Nicole, you've had many interesting adventures traveling to exotic locales over over the years, even before you were a card-carrying faculty member. <laughs> Let's start, start with the uh, time you spent in the Amazon. Um, how was that, and how did that location shape your future studies? Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> I'm surprised that you looked that up. <laughs> so... Basically, after I got out of vet school, I wanted to work with wildlife, wildlife diseases, and started an infectious disease PhD. I, ha- I kind of have to go with a story because... Oh, that's fine. It's a, we love stories. Explains. <laughs> <laughs> so as I was doing that PhD, I started taking ecology classes, and I hadn't taken a lot before, and I just fell in love with disease ecology and eco- like tropical ecology and, and nutritional ecology of tropical vertebrates, and so... I went to Peru to do a master's under Dr. Richard Bodmer, who was at University of Florida and is now at the Dice Durrell Institute in University of Kent. I, I went to the Amazon, and my project was to study the reproductive ecology and population dynamics of peccaries, white-lipped and collared peccaries, which are pig-like animals. Okay. Yeah. We were working with local communities in the Peruvian Amazon. We used reproductive tracts that hunters collected in local communities, as well as skulls, to study the populations of these animals and to determine uh, whether they were being sustainably hunted or not. Okay, but you you also became interested in parasites and other pathogens of, of the wild pigs at that time as well, right? Yeah, yeah. When I was doing this study, I realized that I was interested in understanding the sustainability of harvest, but another thing was understanding the impacts of pathogens on these populations. And we did necropsies on a couple of the animals, and I remember this one ocelot was just full of echinococcus in its lungs, so it's a tapeworms. (laughs) Tapeworms parasites. Yeah, it had tons of tapeworms and cysts in its lung, and I was just fascinated and but I realized that I needed more pathology training it made me want to get some you know more pathology training in wildlife and zoo or it's wildlife animals and so I did a residency in pathology at the the Bronx Zoo the Wildlife Conservation Society for three years to get a better understanding of disease processes in wildlife 
And a lot of these were captive wildlife zoo animals, but to try to, to just get a better understanding to, to know how to analyze their tissues, interpret disease, and diagnose things. So, I, Great. So I understand that after you, you did this work, you also went on to do some doctoral research where you turned your attention more to the vector, right? So you started studying the rejuvid bug, for those of you that don't know, is also referred to as the kissing bug, and spent some time determining what vertebrate they had fed on. Uh, do I call correctly that you were climbing palm trees infected with reduvid bugs to capture them? Yes. So a bit about the story of what attracted me to Panama. So I was really interested in the impact of land use on disease transmission. So while uh, I was like, reading up on potential areas to study the impacts of deforestation on infectious disease transmission, I looked at the work of doctors Jose Calzada and Azael Saldana in Panama at the, at the Gorgas Institute in Panama, and they were studying Chagas disease in, in reduvid bugs in palm trees. And I was really interested in this study system because there was a lot of deforestation going on in Panama over long term, and there were areas where they were studying that were endemic. So I called them up, or not called them, I sent them an email and got a small funding from UGA. I was an ecology PhD student at the time. And I asked them, can I visit you? Because I'm interested in potentially studying the palms. And they're like, who's this crazy green guy coming here <laughs> to study? And I said, I, I was really interested in studying Chagas in the palms. And so eventually I went and visited them and I think we got along really well. And they helped me when I came and got funding to do the doctoral degree. They were instrumental in helping me get me set up, teaching me even how to identify the Reduvid bugs, that these bugs that were the main species that caused Chagas disease in Panama. The best way that they've found to catch the bugs there is using Moreau traps, where these little traps with sticky tape on the outside and a screen, and inside there is a mouse. And so we would put like a hydration source and some food for the mouse and put the mouse up in the palm tree and let it stay the night. And then that would attract the kissing bugs into the palm. So they're attracted by the mouse and they get stuck on the they tape. They get stuck on the tape, mm. yeah. I, I have to say that I get kind of creeped out thinking of reaching into a palm tree infested with Chagas vector, pulling it out. Right. <laughs> we, we use gloves, and I had a oh, really amazing okay. assistant. <laughs> well, I had two amazing assistants. Like I would had Umberto Membache, who's a member of the Wonan indigenous community, and he came out with me, and he would help me climb the palms. He would often be the one going up there. I would go up too, but I'd often be holding the ladder at the bottom. Or when we had really tall palms, we trained to actually climb up the trees. In contiguous forests, often the trees grow really tall. And so we trained to use the climbing equipment to go up there. And the guy training us never certified me because he said, you're you can't handle it up there because I was I get too nervous. So Umberto went up to you know when we had to climb the really tall trees, but most of the trees we used a ladder. So we carried a ladder out in the fields and went up the trees. And 
when we were initially studying, we did cut down a few palm trees to make sure that our method of sampling was a good method. So we cut the palm trees and dissected out the palm tree because in the palm crown, the kissing bug lives in the palm crown at the top of the palm crown and lives with all kinds of different animals. There's ants in there that bite, there's wasps, there's a whole community of insects, basically, and sometimes snakes. Oh, this, this this just keeps getting better. <laughs> yeah, this sounds like my worst nightmare. Porcupines. There's, you know, all kind of stinging and biting things. Lots of scorpions, and actually there are scorpions that can kill people that have killed children that live in, in that palm. There's many different species. There's also fake scorpions or whip scorpions. There's all kinds of different bugs. And, and years later, my student, Christina Varian, she, doctoral student, she actually studied the food webs in those palm crowns and looking at how that impacted or how it was associated with bug abundance in those kissing bug abundance in the palms. But anyway, and then we would cut the palms down. And before we went out to actually sample the palm crowns, we did some sampling where Senor Jose Montenegro who still comes out with us to the field. He helped us cut the palms down and then sample, dissect out the whole palm and sample kissing bugs. So we would get an estimate of the true number of bugs in a palm. And then, uh, you know, when we were sampling, like what our, you know, how, how much we were kind of undersampling or how, what proportion of the bugs we were actually catching to get an idea of the relative abundance of bugs in the palms. So, okay, we've been talking a lot about the reduvid bug and the fact that it's a vector for transmission of Chagas disease. Can you tell us very briefly what Chagas disease is and and why we should care about Chagas disease? Okay. (laughs) Chagas disease is a parasitic disease that infects about, there's an estimate of, I guess, around 8 million people that are at risk or infected worldwide. And transmission obviously occurs locally in the Americas. And most of the transmission occurs in Central and South America and transmitted by redivied bugs. But there is some local transmission in areas of the southern United States as well. And there's transmission to dogs, for instance, in Texas, which are lots of... Because there's a lot of... There are... Tra- it's, it is... It, it circulates in, in both wild environments and also in domestic environments. It can be transmitted also by blood transfusions and organ transfusions. And so in the United States, there are people that can be infected by both organ, blood transfusions, and also congenitally from mother to baby. It causes heart disease. So it's a leading cause of heart disease in Latin America. And the parasite likes to, it can go into any different organs, but it often has a, an attraction or a tropism for heart muscle as well as your intestines as well and right. can mess up the movement of the intestines, cause megacolon, and also cause heart failure. Right. And we have no vaccine for this illness. However, we do have some drugs, but there, they're nasty. Yeah, there are some drugs to treat that are nasty. And I know that there are groups like Dr. Charlton's group that's working on the impacts of a, other n- drugs that might be useful in the future. So I know one of the things you were doing was determining the source of the blood meal in the reduid bugs that it fed. And our listeners might be interested in knowing how you figure out what animal or human a bug is fed on. Okay. 
Yep. And you helped me with this, Dave. <laughs> You're, yeah, you helped me with this, actually. Dave Peterson was one of my committee members on my doctoral degree. And so what we did was, so there's different segments that of DNA. So when the bug ingests blood from a blood meal, there are segments of DNA. So we use a marker, a genetic marker for vertebrates, specific for vertebrates, and amplify the gene, that gene, the 12S ribosomal RNA gene, specific for vertebrates. There are different ones to do, but this one worked out really well. <laughs> so then we amplify that from, we extract the blood from the bugs. We extract the DNA from the blood meal of the bugs, amplify that, and then sequence it, and then look up the sequence and compare that sequence to known sequences. For instance, if the bug was feeding from a sloth, it would the sequence would come up with a match for the blood meal of a sloth, or they would see, the sequence would match on the genet, on gen bank with the sloth, or um, also a bird, and it would match up with a certain species or type of bird. And so as we went on uh, to do this, like we have improved the method to look at next generation sequencing because we used to only be able to kind of get one blood meal per bug, but often those bugs are feeding off of multiple blood meals. So we still use that same gene marker, the 12S ribosomal RNA gene, but use next generation sequencing to be able to detect multiple blood meals that a bug might have been feeding on. And then we take that data, put it all together to try to analyze at the palm level and at a habitat level what communities of hosts that the bugs are feeding on. So is there a preferred host? Because I, I know from work from folks here at UGA like Rick Tarleton that we know that they feed on dogs, humans, monkeys. But is there any other preferred host that we don't know about? And does that host impact transmission? Yeah, that's the really great question. And it depends also on the ecosystem and where these bugs are geographically and what species of bug they are. So the bugs we're studying live in palm crowns. They live in palm trees. And in Panama, the main principal vector of chagas, there's there's like a hundred there's 140 different species of red deviated bugs over that, over 140 different species of red deviated bugs. And in, in Panama, this kissing bug is the principal vector of Chagas, but there are other vectors of Chagas there. In Argentina, for instance, where Rick Tarleton works, the Triatoma infestans is the main vector of Chagas. And there, those bugs invade homes and live in people's homes, and so they feed a lot from dogs, and dogs can be really good reservoirs of infection. They, they can feed from humans. All different stages can live in the houses or in the peri-domestic area. But in the bugs that we study in the palm crowns, the bugs that live in the palm crowns, like Rodneus palescens, which is the main vector of Chagas in Panama, the vectors live in the palm crowns, and they're not adapted to houses. So they... Okay. They will live, they're sylvatic. We call them sylvatic, adapted to wild systems. And so those bugs will live and reproduce, and they mainly feed off of wildlife. And occasionally will come fly down, attracted to lights or to houses that might be permeable to the vectors, and can go ahead and bite people at night and transmit 
the disease. So, so they they are pretty opportunistic feeders. I I I think so. Something that's there and available to feed on and is not moving around too much might be resting during the day or at night is something that they would feed on. And so we assume that what's out, what's available for them is what they're feeding on. At least what, what we look at, we kind of look at the community of hosts that feed from them. And in Panama, an important wildlife reservoir of infection is the common opossum, which has adapted to this parasite. And so, and they also have a lot of litters so there's a lot of susceptible babies. They can even transmit the parasite via their anal glands because an infectious stage of the parasite can live in their anal glands. So, <laughs> And so what we do is basically try to take together all of the hosts that are feeding off of them and look at the community level and try to predict where is their higher transmission or you know higher uh, bug prevalence. We use modeling approaches to try to understand what types of environments are are optimal for transmission of this parasite, both in relative bug numbers and also the hosts that are the bugs are feeding from. So if they're feeding from a lot of really what we call competent hosts or good hosts, good reservoirs, mm -hmm. then this could drive infection up as well as abundance of bugs up. And then if someone lives in a near a palm tree in an area, that's optimal for transmission, there could be a higher likelihood that somebody could get infected. And right now we're using, the cur current study that we're looking at now is we're using dogs as sentinels for infection because they live with people. And we sample the dogs to see if they've been exposed to chagas to evaluate those local household environmental factors and then habitat structure and how that habitat structure, how both deforestation and areas of land reversion could impact transmission of right disease. So to me, it sounds like overall you're really interested in the ecology yes. of Chagas disease. The ecology of Chagas. Right. Yeah. So what I found really interesting in a recent paper you published, and it was about ecological mechanisms that drive transmission of vector-borne pathogens, but you looked at some factors beyond that, and these included things like socioeconomic and political processes. Yeah. And what are some of those and how do you measure them? This is a long question. <laughs> how do you measure them and relate them to pathogen transmission? Yeah, well, I guess the one answer is we work a lot with across disciplines because that knowledge base and the approach to understanding social, economic, and historical factors that might influence disease transmission we incorporate and collaborate with people in the social sciences as well to try to understand these processes. But one thing could be, for instance, often what happens, I guess, in, in this whole deforestation disease literature, I would say that often what happens is that local people will get blamed for deforesting an area or destroying an area and that this is driving increased transmission where in reality, what happens in many instances, there are a lot of complex external economic, political factors and social factors that might drive deforestation. So often you can get large scale, you can get things like mines. People will have projects to develop mines, like large companies will come in and create um, a large scale disturbances in the land. Or there are things like 
where a few people own a lot of land and tend to marginalize people that actually work on the land that actually have you know use the land for food <laughs> and and live in rural areas so often there are inequalities that occur with that are both social and economic and that often draw can actually drive disease transmission because it drives people to have to live in to be marginalized both ecologically politically economically and so they're often susceptible to to disease transmission that's caused that can be caused or driven by land use change and often that land use change is not from smallholder farmers who have very often have very diverse agroecosystems that have developed to kind of that often resist plagues and other diseases both in crops as well as in their livestock and so what hap- often there's these larger political economic drivers and we have to kind of step back see what where the west rest what's happening in the rest of the world how that is influencing the local transmission disease transmission processes so one thing we do want to touch on today because it's been in recent headlines locally regards some specimens from the Atlanta Zoo that have tested positive for something new. Oh, I rhymed. <laughs> <laughs> so tell us about what, what you found there. Okay. So I'm part of this zoo and zoo and exotics animal pathology service. So as part of the service, we often get samples sent to us from zoos and exotic animal clinicians from animals. And at the Atlanta Zoo, the veterinarian at the, one of the veterinarians at the Atlanta Zoo, Sam Rivera, and his other veterinarians, I forgot their names, but they would found, they often would do routine surveillance when they find things like dead squirrels or dead rats in the animal compounds where the animals are living. They send that to us to make sure that animal doesn't have a disease that's important for gorillas or that's important for the other animals in the in the in in undermanaged care they call that in the zoo <laughs> and so we get those samples of often animals samples of organs in formaldehyde uh, process them look at them under the microscope and we noticed that this was a bunch of pathologists uh, that over the past few years that we've been noticing worms in the bloodstream in these samples. And we're like, this is this could definitely be Angiostrongylus cantonensis, which is can cause disease in people and also can cause cause disease in other animals. And we sent samples of the the worm in our slides. So we had the slides, the tissues were embedded in paraffin. We took samples of that, sent them to Guy Verrocchi at Texas A&M, and he sequenced them, and uh, he did PCR and sequencing and found out that they were Angiostrongylus cantonensis. And so this would be the first report of this parasite in Georgia, first local report 
of that in in the rats. So how did it get to Georgia? That's a really good question. So <laughs> I think in the, in the 1980s, it was believed to have been introduced maybe into seaports like New Orleans. It was first. It, it is in New Orleans. And this parasite is transmitted by the definitive host where the adults live is the rat. That so is a rat. And intermediate hosts where the intermediate stage that can infect people live lives in slugs and snails so that where the infective stage lives so normally the transmission cycle is rats will ingest the infective stage of the parasite in snail or slug or maybe some other hosts like a frog or something like well I don't know if rats are eating frogs but I mean they'll eat like a slug or snail and then that parasite cycle continues. But sometimes what happens is someone will either they could get on their vegetables, slug, slugs, and inadvertently slugs that have the intermediate stage, the infective stage of the parasite. And people could eat or ingest the parasite that way or eat improperly cooked escargot. And sometimes the parasite, the infective stage of that parasite can live in things like freshwater shrimp or crabs. And if people eat them that are improper and it's improperly cooked and it has that infective stage of the parasite, they can get infected with this worm. And the worm will travel, it doesn't, in people, it will travel to the, the brain and spinal cord. And it will do this also in rats, but the rat is adapted to it. But for people, it causes tremendous inflammation or people, hosts that are not adapted to, to that. It will cause tremendous inflammation in the brain and spinal cord. And so it can cause what's known as eosinophilic uh, meningoencephalitis, which can cause uh, a lot of central nervous system symptoms like dizziness, vomiting. Well, I don't eat a lot of snails, but I'm definitely going to be washing my lettuce early today. <laughs> So I think that that wraps it up for us. Our guest today is Dr. Nicole Gottdenker from the Department of Pathology and the Center for the Ecology of Infectious Diseases. Nicole, thanks for being with us. Right, thanks. Links to additional information about Dr. Gottdenker's research can be found on our Instagram account, which is at pppodcastuga. Thank you for tuning in today. If you have any questions or suggestions for future episodes, reach out to us via email at ppp at uga.edu. This podcast is brought to you by the Faculty of Infectious Diseases and the Grady College of Journalism at the University of Georgia. It is supported by the University of Georgia through the Office of Research, the UGA Graduate School, and the College of Veterinary Medicine. Thanks to the New Media Institute at Grady for use of their Studio Not Found podcast facilities. And a special thanks to our production assistant, Sid Wigand, for research, editing, scheduling, and keeping us on track. Mm-hmm.